everybody. Victor Adair, and I'm sitting in for Mike Campbell, who's taking a very well-deserved brief vacation, and I'm going to be your host today. For the show, we've got, I think, just a great lineup. We're going to start with Kevin Muir, who's been on many times. He's been at the World Outlaw Conference as well. Kevin's going to talk about why interest rates have been rising the way they have, particularly at the long end. And he has been a multi-year bear on the bond market, but he is going to tell us why he's changed from being bearish on the bond market, particularly relative to the stock market. I've just read his latest piece, and I'm really looking forward to talking with Kevin. I've got my son, Drew Zimmerman, coming on. He is the chief executive officer of a company that is focused on developing uranium properties in the Athabasca area, uh, the Athabasca Basin, I should say. He's going to tell us why he shifted from being in the gold business to being in the uranium business, and I think he's got a great story to tell. And then I got one of my dear, dear friends, Greg. Greg Weldon is going to come on. You've heard him on the show many times over the past 20 years. The guy is just a bundle of energy, and he's going to be also at the World Outlook Conference again this year. He's going to be giving us like a, I'm hoping, you just do this with Greg, a sort of a, a world view of what's going on. He can talk about the currency markets, the stock markets, the commodity markets, and, and, and doesn't hold back about giving us his opinions as to what he thinks is going on. So I think we've got a great lineup. We got it's, it's a wild and crazy markets out there, so I'm really looking forward to what these experts have to say. But just before we get into the show, i got to remind you that the tickets for this next year's uh, World Outlook Conference coming up in February 2nd, and third, uh, 2024, the tickets are going to go on sale November the 4th. That's a Saturday. And, uh, oh, yeah, inside edge people can buy those tickets uh, 24 hours in advance of the, the formal opening. And uh, oh, one other thing, I guess, the theme, kind of, or certainly one of the themes for the World Outlook Conference this year is going to be about investing in energy. And uh, you can count on it. We're also going to do our traditional, you know, we'll talk about economic events, uh, what's going on on the stock market, uh, opportunities, you know, have like Ryan Irving and his guys there talking about some of the stocks that they like. I just, I think I've done 35 of these World Outlook conferences. I love them. You don't want to miss it. I look forward to seeing you there. You know, when Mike Campbell is away and he asks me to host the show for him, I always think about, well, who am I going to have on? And I'm going to tell you, <laughs> I am I am very keen that Kevin Muir is going to be on the show with me today. I've known Kevin for some time. I have read all of the letters that he published going back at least six years. Uh, he's had a couple of zingers lately, and he's been particularly focused on the bond market. So, Kev, welcome to the Money Talk Show. I'm so happy you're here. And I've got to tell you, we're going to talk about bonds. And then I really want to talk to you about how you trade in the markets. I'm looking forward. It's always great to be with you today. Okay. So the bond market has been, let's call it a disaster for the last three years. People have been talking about it that way. But I say, hey, listen, it was the greatest bull market in the world for 40 years, right. you know, we're, we're having a three-year correction, but yeah, we've got the TLT, the most popular bond ETF that's out there, is down 50% from the August of 2020, and yet people are putting money into that thing like there's no tomorrow. What, what do you make about what's happening to the bond market? Well, as you know, Victor, I've been a huge bond bear for the longest time. Uh, I've been warning and uh, kind of my line was always like the bonds that were the ballast in your portfolio could become the anchor that drags your whole portfolio down. And that's what we've experienced. And so it's been a little difficult for me lately because, you know, at this level, I'm no longer as bearish as I used to be. And right. I just, when something's down 55%, that's what they'll long bond is down and and you have a situation where it's yielding five plus percent on a real basis meaning the interest that you earn after after inflation is still the highest it's been in a long time it's tough to be really bearish and yet it's kind of amusing because all the folks that were telling me oh i don't get it the bond market's smarter than everyone you know when i was bearish before they were saying the bond market knows we're going to have a recession. It seems like a lot of those folks are now telling me term premium. I, I kind of call them the term premium bros because they, they tell me all about the term premium problem or they tell me all about the refunding problem. And I said, yeah, I, I get it. 
but that's all in the market. And so for the first time in a long time, I'm looking at bonds and especially relative to equities. I think that they're actually, uh, you know, something you should buy and you should be increasing your exposure here, not decreasing it. Yeah, that's uh, the title of your latest piece here. It's all about the math or something to that effect yeah. where you, you talk about bonds relative to stocks. I, I know when we lead off and say, hey, we're going to talk about bonds, some people go, oh, my God, you know, can, can't they find something interesting to talk about? <laughs> but, but, but to me, I mean, the bond market is absolutely, you know, the, the basis of the whole pyramid of everything. W- oh, would you agree? 100%. The U.S. 10-year is the, the rate upon which almost all assets throughout the world are priced off of. Whether you're looking at a, a REIT, like a portfolio of properties, you have to, you need a rate to compare it to, or whether you're trying to decide at which point, at what level you discount your cash flows for your NVIDIA future earnings, it's, it's, you need a risk-free rate, and that's what the U.S. 10-year is, and it's the most watched rate in the world, and it's gone from like 1% to 5 over the last three years, and yet, you know, here at 5, when it's at the kind of, as I explained, the highest real level, meaning after inflation, the highest real level we've had in ages, everyone's deciding that now is the time to get bearish on bonds. And I'm saying, wait, hold up a moment. This isn't the time to get bearish on bonds. This is actually more worrisome about the stock market. And I've been writing a lot about what they call the equity risk premium. And that is kind of what your stocks yield. And and I know everyone thinks about yield in terms of dividends, but they should really be thinking about yield in terms of what it earns. And I've been talking about the stock, uh, you know, the earnings yield versus the interest rate. So if we go back to 2020, March of 2020, when the world seemed to be coming to an end with COVID, you looked at the, uh, you know, the long bond, the 30-year long bond, it was trading at 1.35%. And yet the NASDAQ was had an earning yield of 6% or something like that, meaning it was earning 6%. And not only that, we had a situation where the earnings had already fallen 20%. Now, fast forward to today, the earnings yield on the the NASDAQ is less than five. It's a four and a half or something. The long bond is five and change. And not only that, we've had the earnings going up for the past year, 20%. So if you kind of just apply some basic portfolio logic and, and, and sit back and remove the emotion and think about constructing a portfolio, Is this the point to be selling bonds and buying more stocks? No, it's the opposite. And I know it feels terrible. It feels really scary to buy the asset that's down 55%, whereas the the Mag 7 or the Magnificent 7 of the NASDAQ is up 111%. But just remember how bad it felt to buy stocks and sell bonds in March of 2020. And trading is hard. And that's the long and short of it. If it was easy, there wouldn't be these opportunities and everyone would do it. When I hear you say the word portfolio, I, I think automatically of institutional accounts in particular, you know, Canada pension fund, teachers pension fund, that sort of thing. Those sort of portfolios are the people who think about things. They've got a long-term liability and they really want to, you know, they're, they're not gamblers. Right. Right? They're not looking for the hot story. So for those folks, owning bonds has been a big part of their, call it 60-40, kind of a classic structure. So that when bonds and stocks have both been going down here the past three years, that's causing some people to at least at least pretend they're pulling their hair out. <laughs> well, I've already pulled all <laughs> mine out, Victor. Um, <laughs> well, this is actually one of the things that I've been harking on is that the that negative correlation between stocks and bonds that was prevalent from basically the last 30, 40 years and almost every institutional portfolio manager and every retail investor has experienced has has just been so prevalent meaning that when you were worried about stocks declining generally your bonds did really well so it was really easy to make a portfolio of stocks and bonds and have them balance each other out and yet what happened recently and it's it we could talk about the reasons why but i i believe it's in essence a change from monetary kind of uh dominance to more fiscal dominance in terms of our policies but we've had a situation now where stocks and bonds are positively correlated and i know that sounds like some fancy words and you might say oh geez this is way too complicated but it has really far-reaching ramifications to everyone's portfolios and the way we construct portfolios 
Because if you think about it, if you had a situation where you had one asset that you knew was going to go up if the other one went down, it would enable you to have larger kind of quantities of both assets. But if you have a situation where they can both go down together, it creates a situation where you have to reduce your exposure to each asset. And I think that's what we're experiencing. And I think that the 60-40, which had been just a stalwart of, of people's portfolios and, and almost all brokers around the world were kind of using that as the bedrock. We had the worst year that we'd ever had, I think, in the last 100 years for the, the 60-40 portfolio. And that challenge hasn't gone away. Well, listeners have regularly heard Mike and I talk about correlation, and that's exactly what you're talking about. It, when you say negatively correlated, it's one's going up and the other's going down. Uh, but we've now had this positive correlation where stocks and bonds have both gone down together, and people have to, I said pulling their hair out or at least pretending to be doing it. But I guess f with your latest letter here, uh, about the math or so, you know, whatever, whatever the expression was there. But you're, you're saying that now it looks like, even though you've been a classic bear on the bond market for the past few years, given the correlation between stocks and bonds, you think this is probably a good time to be getting back into the bond market if for, if for only the reason that we're, that kind of gives you some, uh, some advantage over just being 100% in stocks. Well, what I'm really saying is that for the longest time, it, it made sense to be long stocks and to not have as many bonds because bonds were yielding low levels of real returns. They, they uh, To me, it seemed to have all sorts of downside with very little upside. And now all of a sudden we have a situation where bonds have repriced and they're much higher. And I'm looking at these and I'm thinking, oh, geez, you know what? Now all of a sudden, if you're sitting there and you're, planning for your retirement, instead of going and looking at a 30-year or 20-year bond or 10-year bond and seeing numbers that are sub two, you're seeing numbers that are five. And not only that, if you take a little bit of risk and you go out the corporate curve, you can get six, seven, eight percent. And Howard Marks, who's just one of the smartest fellows out there, is Oak Tree Capital. He recently had a piece about this and he wrote about how it's a sea change. And he's arguing that if you're sitting there and you talked about the institutional guys like Canada Pension Plan and other endowments. And if they're sitting there and they are owning stocks, expecting over the long run to earn 8%, and that's why they own stocks, all of a sudden now corporate bonds, which are a contract as opposed to a story, and meaning that you actually know what you're going to earn over the next future, as long as they don't default, you know what your returns are going to be. A lot of these pensions can meet their obligations by switching their equities, which are much higher in risk, into these bonds. And ultimately, that's what I am kind of talking about is that I'm not saying you should go out and buy a ton of bonds, but I think on a relative basis, if you've been overweight stocks, it's time to sell some of your stocks and buy bonds. That's a perfect way to say it. And by the way, you know, we got to put this in here. Folks, this is not investment advice from us. This is just ideas. If you, before you go make massive changes in your RSP, you'll want to, you know, yes. to check with your advisor and all that sort of thing. Kev, uh, people have said, you know, um, that one of the reasons that bond prices have done what they've done, bond prices have gone down, is because the market is worried that there's going to be just so much printing of bonds by governments that are look like they're committed to running deficits. And I absolutely agree with you. It's a shift away from monetary policy to fiscal policy. Right. And it seems as though the politicians have discovered that people love the idea of the right. government spending money on them. Okay. So it would seem there's a good chance we're going to continue to have these deficits. So as a bondholder, I don't want to be a bag holder. So I've been backing away from the bonds. Now, some people have come up with the idea that the Treasury and the Fed may understand that people's appetite for bonds is really not there, so that they may adjust some of the things that they do to make bonds more attractive. For instance, the Fed might ease back on some of the quantitative tightening they're doing, right. or at least maybe not sell along into the curve. And conversely, the Treasury might, instead of issuing a ton of long bonds, might you know shorten the duration on some of those things. 
What do you think? Is that just a harebrained idea? No, no. I, I think you're absolutely correct. I, uh, and in fact, I would argue that the long end of the bond market backing up this 100 basis points or 80 basis points in the space of two or three weeks right after the last FOMC meeting is actually what caused the Fed to pivot. Everyone talks about the, this Fed put and they and they believe, I think mistakenly, that the Federal Reserve targets stock prices. And I can tell you that I am completely convinced they don't target stock prices. But what they do target is a functioning bond market. And sometimes that bond market can get into trouble and it's not just what we call government bonds, meaning rates, it's also credit corporate credit and we can have a, a widening of credit spreads and at those periods the federal reserve will often change policies and so what you'll see is if we have a situation like in in late 2018 where when powell had first taken over the reins at the fomc he had gone and he had appeared very hawkish and we had this kind of uh we're a long way from neutral rhetoric out of him and what happened was that the corporate bond market in essence shut down and it just it stopped working corporations couldn't raise any more money and because they were worried about fed the fed's policies and that coincided with an, a decline in the s&p 500 and the stocks and so the long and short of it is that was what caused the federal reserve to change policy in late 2018 and i would argue that this last fomc meeting where they finally seem to drill home the higher for longer kind of mantra and the market finally got it. And what you saw was what's called a classic bear steepening where not only did rates go up across the curve, but the long end went up even more. That was what actually caused the Fed to pivot and to put on hold their tightening policy. Now, they haven't done this officially, but for those who watch the Fed kind of closely and the watch for signs, it's pretty clear, and you can see the market has repriced it, that the Fed is now put on hold, they're tightening, and they, for a while there, there was all sorts of ch higher chances of a November or December hike being priced in over the last couple of weeks that's completely come out of the market. Yeah, I've heard some people say it this way, that the rising bond yields have done the Fed's job for them. hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Now, here's another thought or another, you, you see this around. People will say there's always going to be a buyer for U.S. Treasuries. It's just a matter of at what price. So the market's repricing to get there. But it kind of tied into that. Something I've noticed here, particularly since the events began in Israel, you know, classically, we thought the bonds got a safe haven bid. Like when right. people are getting fearful, they think, oh, gee, get, get me out of the risky stuff and put me in something nice, nice and safe, like a U.S. Treasury bond. The fact that the bonds didn't get bid higher said to me, man, this, this market is really heavy. You know, if we can't get a, a safe haven bid now, you know, when would we get one? What do you think? Well, so I agree with your analysis that it, it it does appear that treasuries did not fulfill the role of that kind of safe haven in a geopolitical storm. And in fact, gold ended up looking like it did that. Gold rallied from 1850 to 1975 in the, in the space of a couple of weeks or a week. Um, but I think it's a little more complicated than that. And for those who say that are all worried about the bond market and this decline, I actually push back and I say that the market is actually um, behaving fine. And the real problem isn't where we are today, meaning that the levels that we're at today, the real problem was the levels we were at six months, a year ago. And so if you think back to when the Fed first started raising rates, a lot of market participants were very concerned that the, as the Fed raised, rose, like increased rates, we would have a situation where the economy would very quickly roll over and cause a recession. And because they were worried about that, they kept buying long dated treasury bonds. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of one of these things that the, the Fed really didn't understand why. And it had to do with kind of just a recency bias that it hasn't taken much in the past to raise rates for the economy to roll over. Like if you look 
at all of the cycles since 1982, every time the Fed kind of increased rates, they didn't need to go as high as they had gone the last cycle before the economy rolled over. And this cycle was different. Like it really, we should have, you know, if that had held, we should have never got above two. Yet here we are at five. And I think it had to do with the fact that a lot of people didn't understand the power of fiscal policy. And so they underestimated the strength of the economy. And while they were underestimating the strength of the economy, they, in essence, inverted the yield curve, meaning they kept long rates lower than they should have been. And ironically, that also caused financial conditions to be looser than they should have been, which made the Fed actually have to raise rates even more. And it just seemed to be one of these things where all of a sudden everyone kind of came to a realization all at once. Hey, it doesn't look like we're going to have a recession. Hey, it looks like the Fed's actually serious with these rates are going to stay up here. And they repriced everything. Now, I think it's kind of ironic that they've repriced it uh, and given up on their recession calls when it's actually the most likely it's been in a long time. But hey, that's what makes a market. And, and in fact, them giving up on the recession calls and repricing the long end could be the actual, the kind of the trigger that causes the recession. If you understand, the higher rates cause it to, uh, for kind of consumer and business policies to change because of these higher rates. So when you go back and you say the Fed can't, uh, like uh, there's going to be no buyers, I think that it has to do with the fact that the curve was so inverted. And I'll just tell you, I used to work for a big bank. I used to work at RBC. I was an equity derivative guy, but I would go over and talk to the bond guys. And it always amazed me how these guys were always long. And I was like, what's, what's with these guys? Like they're always rooting for the end of the world and they're always long bonds. And the reality is that in a normal shaped uh, kind of yield curve, it made sense for them to kind of always be long. They were borrowing, you know, at the front end like the, at the rate that the Bank of Canada set. And then they were long a bond that was yielding 50 or 100 basis points more. And as long as nothing kind of changed that day, they had a built-in edge. And what I think people don't realize is that with an inverted curve, that's actually the opposite. That edge, it's actually, it makes more sense to be short and to actually carry a short position than it does to hold a, long, a levered long position. So my point is the moment that they get the curve back to normal, we're going to be surprised at how many bonds we can sell. And I don't think that that's going to be an issue. I just think that the issue isn't the, the price was just so wrong six months, a year ago. And this is just all part of the process of getting the price to a proper level. So what you're talking about there was in, a, in essence, a carry trade. And that's correct. Borrow money cheap and lend it out long. I mean, you want to do that all day long. Um, you l let's go back to this. You know, and I know this to be a fact, but just to, for our audience to be reminded, you've been bearish on bonds for quite some time. Yes. And you're you're the last couple of letters. I can see. You know, you're changing your tune, and you're you're being a little. You're being um, not fancy, but you're being particular about where you go on the curve. Right. But just for for general purposes here. Um, I'm going to ask you two questions. One, are you buying bonds to kind of tuck them into your RSP and keep them for 20 years? Or is this just, just a trade? And when you think about this, you know, we both know the positioning in the bond markets that some people are long, some people are short, but what we might call the hot money, guys like Ackman, for instance, in the news lately, have been short bonds. If those folks have to cover, is that part of the rationale that you might want to be long bonds here uh, as, as some of the people that have been so bearish come into the market as buyers to cover their positions? Okay, so let's go with the first question first. Let's um, take that. Uh, ultimately, I'm still a bond bear because I believe that inflation will be a problem over the long run. So I think that we could have very easily in an average inflation of 4% over the next decade. And therefore, although a 10-year bond at five still offers me a positive real yield, it's not that attractive. And so when I am buying bonds for an RSP or for long-term accounts, I'm, I like buying tips or real return bonds, which is basically you get a yield plus inflation. So if I end up being correct, and inflation's 4%, and I buy a 10-year tip that's yielding 2.5%, 
I get the two and a half percent guaranteed plus inflation. And so if that works out to four, I earn six and a half percent. So for all my long-term purchases, it's tips, 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 tips. In Canada, it's called a real return bond. And interestingly enough, we've actually, as a Canadian government, stopped selling these things. And I I wholeheartedly think that's the right play because I, I don't understand why any government would sell these things because I think that they're 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 cheap as anything. And so I, I kind of support that. But I think that eventually we're going to – people will buy those and you won't be able to get them. So I think it's something people should look at. Um, now, in terms of the positioning, it's been a very complicated uh, – a very debated kind of issue in terms of where everyone stood. For the longest time, when I spoke about the fact that people thought there was a recession coming and it, and it seemed to be that most hedge funds uh, were leaning long, they would point to the actual, what's called the commitment to traders reports, which shows what different uh, kind of speculators or commercials are doing and what their positions were. And a lot of people would point to this uh, commitment of traders and say, the specs, the speculators are net short bonds. And they would point to this and they say, look, we're going to have a huge rally in bonds because all these hedge funds are short bonds. And I have been kind of counseling the whole way down that you shouldn't use that speculator, that that commitment of traders report uh, because they're interpreting it incorrectly. And the reason they're interpreting it incorrectly is because large asset managers like PIMCO or CalPERS or, you know, CPP, they will use futures like treasury futures as a way to get exposure to the bond market. So when they're long, they do that instead of actually buying the bond and someone needs to sell it to them and the hedge funds do it and they sell them the bond future. They go short, but they buy the underlying bond. And that's called the basis trade. And it's a little more complicated because the short can decide which issue they deliver in. So there's a little optionality in in there. And there's some other kind of kinks. But the long and short of it is that everyone thought that all these speculators were short when in essence, everyone was long. There was actually very few shorts in the market before. That has changed though over the last, I don't know, month, two months. We've seen many more uh, bond bears come out. You mentioned Bill Ackman. He was a very vocal bond bear. And I think that talking to people and kind of understanding the sentiment, I think that the fast money is overwhelmingly short bonds right now. Right. Kevin, I, I love the fact that you have mentioned that COT data. I've followed COT for 30 years and I've seen that the the people that are showing up there have changed. I mean, we, what we call real money accounts and fast money accounts or levered money accounts and that. And, and I think maybe the key risk management lesson you're, you're delivering here is that you need to be sure that the data that you're using to make your point is yeah. right. <laughs> well, and it, understand what it's saying as well. Yeah. And so yeah. for the, the uh, treasury bond futures, I actually think a much better thing to watch for a kind of feel for overall sentiment of speculators is to look at the small trader position because the small traders aren't doing any basis trades. You know, they're not shorting futures and buying cash. They're just doing it because they think it's going up or down. So I think in some ways that's actually a better kind of uh, uh, indicator. Listen, this is a good opportunity to segue a little bit about, we've been talking about bonds. Uh, We've only got so much time. I want to talk to you about, just for a couple of minutes about how you trade, you know, what markets you trade, how you manage the risk of what you're doing, how you avoid, let's say, concentration. And you find, gee, everything I've got on is all the same trade, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, well, I, as you know, Victor, my motto is all I bring to the party is 25 years of mistakes. Um, mm-hmm. I actually think I need to update that because it's been longer than 25 years now. So, over the years, I've learned and I've probably made every mistake in the book, and I still find new ones to make. Um, but on the whole, uh, how do I trade? Let's think about this. Sir. I approach it much more as a portfolio, and that's the one thing I think that I'm different than a lot of folks. Like a lot of other traders will pick 10 trades, and they'll have stop losses on all 10, and they'll say, okay, if this one moves 2% or whatever it is, then I'm going to unwind it. And I look at how my book is behaving as an entire portfolio. And what I've found over the years is that when I have too much volatility, 
And originally I used to think that it was only downside volatility. I would reduce, I try to reduce all the positions because if you pick one, you're never really going to pick the wrong position and you're going to do something incorrect. And as I mentioned, I used to just work on the downside volatility, figuring that the upside volatility, there was no problem. Like who cares? You know what? If you all of a sudden have a big up move, you should just let it run. Inevitably, what I found for myself was that if I had, let's say I'm used to having days that are, let's just pick up 200 basis points, being 2%. I make 2% in a day. And then all of a sudden I have a 4% day and another 3% day. What I worry about is that if all of a sudden I now have a 3% or 4% down day, I'm going to be too emotional about it because that's too, even though I'm up with that money, I'm going to make the wrong decision because I'm not used to having those sorts of moves on on the downside, even though it's kind of playing with the house's money. So what I've found in general is that up or down, if my volatility is higher than I want, I reduce positions. And I definitely look at the portfolio as a whole. I don't sit around and, and although obviously if I have a trade that's not working, I will go deal with it. But it's difficult because a lot of my trades are like, I'm buying this versus this. Like right now, I'm short all sorts of the Mag 7, the Magnificent 7, and I'm long bonds, and I, that's kind of a spread trade. So if if one's working, I'm hoping the other one's working, or if one isn't working, I'm hoping the other one's working better, if you understand. Like if bonds keep going down, I'm convinced that the stocks are in even more trouble, and they're going to go down even more than the bonds. So I look at that as kind of a, a as a pairs trade, and I look at it as a portfolio as a whole. Pairs trade is an expression the currency guys have been using for decades, right? We understand that that you you don't just buy the dollar; you're yeah. buying the dollar against the euro or something. Right. So yeah, every, in essence, everything is a pairs trade. But before we wrap it up here, how about give it a give us some feel for the time horizon that you work on when you're trading, or, or are you all over the map? Well, I am a little bit over the map, and and this is one of the things that Victor, I've always kind of people say, well, you know, how you know, how, where have you made your money, and like, what's the thing that you specialize in? And I kind of laugh, and I go, my knowledge is like an inch thick, uh, you know, a mile wide. I don't have anything <laughs> that I, I particularly focus on. And uh, let's just take Bitcoin. When Bitcoin first came into being, and I and I. Well, like this back when it was $50, I figured out that we could go and we could mine Bitcoin and we could do some ARBs. So we went and did that. Um, there was a time when I got bullish on oil and I went out and I looked at the oil futures curve and I realized that it was pricing in a, a large increase. And then I looked at the stocks and I realized they were trading like call options. And I said to myself, well, geez, both of those trades, I have to be so right to make any money, but let's go look at the bonds. And I ended up buying all of these kind of down and out energy bonds because those ended up being what I thought was a better risk reward. And so for that year, I traded a lot of energy bonds. So for me, I kind of, I try to stay nimble. I try to look for opportunities wherever they might arise. One year, it might be the end. The next year, it might be bonds. It doesn't matter. I'll try to do whatever. And in terms of the time frame, it is a lot of mixed kind of things. I'll have trades that are a day and then I'll have trades that are weak. I'll have trades that are a year. Like I was short bonds forever. And like one of my core trades was this inflation break evens where I'm long tips short the bonds. I literally held that for years. And it was just something that I just I I I would always have it on the sheets. And so the answer is that it's 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 a lot of the above. Listen, Kev, thank you for coming and being on the podcast with us. Um, I, I want to tell people the last letter that you wrote. I have the name down here. <laughs> when the math changes. Right. Uh, I, I just think this is a great one. And uh, you listeners can get a copy of this if they just send an email to Kevin at the macrotourist.com. Is that right? That's correct. I'm happy okay, to Kev send off some stuff. Kevin at the macrotourist.com. Send him an email if you're interested. Get a free copy. I'm telling you, I've been a subscriber since Kevin went behind a paywall. I love the work that he does. And I'm always just amazed at how much work you do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. That's very kind of you, Victor. Kev, uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, we hope to have you back on the show again. Anytime. My pleasure. Cheers, buddy.
Well, welcome back. The next guest here is my son, and he is in the uranium business. And I have to tell you, I was at Joseph Schachter's energy conference in Calgary just uh, two weeks ago, and I listened to him do a presentation to the room about why his company had shifted from being focused on gold to being focused on uranium. And then later the next day, uh, that, that day actually, Drew and I did one of those father-son walks along the side of the Bow River in Calgary. And he was telling me why he thought it was really important to shift away from gold I mean, and go to uranium. And I knew at that time that I was going to be hosting this show, that Mike was going to be away. And I thought, I got to have Drew on the show to talk about uranium. So, Drew, welcome. Glad you're here. And Tell our listeners why you made the shift from gold to uranium. Yeah, first, thank you very much for, for having me on the show. And yeah, you're right. My my company, uh, Stallion Uranium, was focused uh, on gold. But a lot of things started happening you know, well over a year ago um, that sort of set the stage for us to move into the uranium space. And I think maybe it started with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and and just the attention that that brought to uh, energy security for a lot of nations and especially Western nations and especially those in Europe. But that sort of led to the initial uh, thinking about, you know, where we were going to continue to get our energy and, and how it was going to be made. So that along with, you know, the global push towards net zero by 2050 really brought uranium sort of back onto the center stage. And, it was through that time over the last year, year and a half now, that the public perception also really started to, to change in uranium. That was, you know, a very important part of, of what was happening because uranium had been in a, you know, uh, a, a very bare market after the Fukushima disaster. A lot of nuclear reactors be, were turned off, so demand was, was down. There was a big oversupply of uranium. Mines were getting shut down. Um, but it's only been in the last few years that nuclear sort of had a, a renaissance. And, and the important part of that is people realizing that if we do want to get to net zero by 2050, nuclear power is probably the only way that we can, can get there. It's the uranium is one of the highest energy density uh, metals that we have out there. So being able to use that uh, sort of new momentum that was coming into the space and redirect our company uh, into that market, we thought made the absolute most sense right now because you had a decade of underinvestment after Fukushima, and now you had a new uh, demand growing. With you know, there's 436 nuclear reactors right now. There's 60 new being built, almost half of those in China. There's another 110 planned, and another 321 proposed. That's going to be the a, a doubling of nuclear reactors in the next decade uh, if they all go ahead. And, and we just don't have the supply available on the uranium side. And that's without introducing uh, the new SMR technology as well. So there was a lot of things that were starting to turn uh, in the industry to make nuclear look like it was going to be a very attractive place to be for the next several years or even next decade. So for us to get in and, and get in you know, relatively early, as we did a year ago, uh, is is really sort of the exciting side of it. And especially for us, we are a, a uranium exploration company. You know, we think the pipeline of available deposits of uranium just aren't there globally. So not only do we need the development of, of more uranium, but we also need to find a lot more. So it made it uh, make a lot of sense, even at the, the junior exploration side of things. Well, your timing seems to be pretty good. I mean, we've seen some of the, like the flagship uh, chemical has gone up uh, uh, very steeply. A lot of other uh, uranium plays have had a good run. Um, before I forget to mention, you are also going to be one of the speakers uh, presenting about your company, Stallion Uranium, at the World Outlook Conference uh, at the Western Bayshore in Vancouver in February next year. But um there's a lot we can get to, but one of the key questions I have is you've dis, you're focused absolutely on the Athabasca Basin in Saskatchewan. Now, tell us why you, you made that decision. Yeah, no, I mean we we definitely are very focused on the Athabasca Basin, and there's 
I mean, a whole list of, of reasons that we could go through on, on why that is. But uh, I mean, the, the top few, one would be the, just the natural endowment that the Athabasca Basin has. So it's got grades that are, are 20 to 100 times uh, the grade of uranium found anywhere else and mined anywhere else in the world. And when we do find these deposits, they tend to be quite large as well. Um, the Athabasca Basin is producing close to about 15% of global supply already uh, right now. So it's an incredibly rich area. We know there's a lot of uranium there. And as an exploration company, we want to be somewhere where we know there's a, a lot of the, uh, the mineral or resource that we're looking for. The second, uh, and especially becoming more important in, in this day and age, is the geopolitical stability especially for Western nations that have a lot of uranium demand. Um, the fact that, you know, it's northern Saskatchewan, uh, central Canada, you know, we have a, a lot of allies uh, in the Western nations that would love to have a safe and secure source of uranium. And then the other big one for Stallion specifically was we have a, a team, uh, my three largest shareholders, um, have had a significant amount of success in the Athabasca Basin. They founded and uh, built out Rough Rider or the Rough Rider deposit in Hathor Exploration and sold that off a decade ago to Rio Tinto for $650 million. They put in foundational assets to NextGen and remain large shareholders there. So it was uh, a team behind me that, that understood the Athabasca Basin, uh, knew how it, how it worked and the success that you could have there. And, you know, they gave us the, the thumbs up to go into the basin and, and become their next big exploration win. And, and that's what we're looking to do. And, and that's what we've done with building out the single largest uh, exploration land package in the Southwest Basin around where NextGen is going to be developing their Rook One project. So we think we've, you know, focused in on an area that is underexplored and, and has a lot of potential to find the next biggest significant uranium deposit in the Athabasca Basin. You know, when people hear about uranium or they, they read that, you know, nuclear is going to be the way to go as we go down the road here into the future, uh, I think a, a common question has got to be, well, how do you get into the, the uranium space? I mean, and there's almost like a classic mining profile here. On the one hand, if it, let's say if it was gold, you know, you could buy a gold bar. You would call that physical. Well, you can go and get... For, with things like the, the Sprott Uranium Trust, for instance, you could buy physical uranium. Uh, you could buy, again, like in gold, the shares of a producing gold mining company. Well, you could do the same thing here in the uranium space. And the sector that you're in is the exploration phase, okay? And that's a, a common enough thing, certainly in, in Canada, in, in the mining space. So uh, you've got, maybe, give me, Give me two minutes worth, if that, on uh, what it's like to be uh, in the exploration space or, or wh what do you think the trajectory of your company goes if things go well? Yeah, absolutely. No, as you mentioned, several ways to, to get into the uranium space. All have done you know, incredibly well with spot prices uh, doing very well over the last year and a half. So for us, you know, we are the early stage, you know, high risk, high reward. We think we continue to do the work to, to de-risk uh, our company as best we can. We have an incredibly large land package to give ourselves a lot of perspective opportunities for finding that next uh, high-grade uh, uranium discovery. Um, and, and that's you know what it, what it comes down to. We're a, a 20 million market cap right now, a company in our region, F3 Uranium, <clears throat> that made a recent discovery, went from 25 million to 150 million in three weeks on a discovery hole. That's the kind of reward that can come to these companies. And, and that was done with uranium prices at $48, not $73 that we have today. So we think the tailwinds behind the sector give us uh, a lot of opportunities to do very well. And then all of our own exploration work uh, and the potential of making that next uh, high-grade discovery in the basin give us a significant amount of upside. Uh, and like I say, being in, an, in a sector that's doing well sort of allows all companies to do well, but then those that are you know, doing good work and have good projects to do incredibly well. So we think that's where we're positioned and really excited and looking forward to the next uh, several months and the next couple of years. 
Well, thanks, Drew. That's uh, Stallion Uranium. The stock symbol on the Toronto Venture Exchange is STUD, S-T-U-D. And Drew will be at the World Outlook Conference uh, in February of next year at the Western Bayshore. And the focus of the World Outlook Conference this coming season is going to be on energy. There's going to be a number of energy uh, companies there telling their story. So we look forward to seeing you at the World Outlook Conference. Drew, thanks for taking the time to visit with us today. Absolutely. Looking forward to the conference and great to be on the show today. Well, now we're going to turn to Greg Weldon. And Greg has been a personal friend of mine for about 20 years. I've got a copy of his book sitting right here, Gold Trading Bootcamp, published in uh, 2007. Uh, and Greg was telling me just off air that for Halloween, he dresses up as Hulk Hogan. And I can certainly <laughs> believe that. Greg, welcome to the show. <laughs> hey, my friend, Victor, how are you doing today? I, I'm really good. Uh, you know, I, and I got to tell people, you are going to be one of our keynote speakers at the World Outlook Conference again this year. That's at the Western Bayshore on February 2nd and 3rd. And uh, let me give you a plug. I think there was something that you forecast. Uh, was it just a year ago that was you thought was going to happen? And it's happened in spades. So what was that? Well, we talked about a lot of things. And for sure, I think one of the better uh, ideas we had was on the panel session uh, somebody was talking about banks, and we came up with the thought process almost collectively that, uh, you know, and I specifically pointed out Japan, that Japanese banks would out likely outperform U.S. banks. And this is something, you know, like you've gone 15 years, 20 years without that happening. And, in fact, since the day of that panel discussion, the Topix Bank Index against the S&P Bank Index is up 78.3% in what amounts to nine and a half months. So. That was a, I could, that's the tangible value of the World Outlook Conference right there. Well, you know, you talk about banks. I was just looking at the Royal Bank of Canada, which is our main bank up here, the biggest one of the of the group. And shares there are down 20%, I think, in the last, well, since uh, middle of July. We're about at a three-year low. Different parts of the banking sector have really not been taking this uh, increasing interest rates very well, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think you just got a good dose of that uh, most recently with the banks in the U.S. talking about, you know, having to set aside larger loan loss reserves specifically against credit card debt. And we talked about credit card debt last time you had me on the program. Uh, so that's yeah, a big yeah. deal. And I might just in that context and how it relates then to the stock market too, say that, you know, people are kind of looking at this and saying, well, where's the recession? Where's the recession? The economy is resilient. You get a 4.9 print on GDP. Some of that's inventory. Some of that's decline in imports. It's not always, you know, the greatest read on the economy. It's a little stale. But you're starting to see the peripheral, you know, decline already. Mortgages have kind of crashed. And now you're seeing it in the consumer, uh, commercial real estate even a little bit. And to whatever extent, people have been surprised with the resilience of the economy and think we're going to escape this range of hawkishness we've seen from the Federal Reserve. I counter by saying this, Victor, when you can't use the timeline that begins with when they started hiking rates because they were so far behind the inflation curve at that point, it, was, it wasn't even funny. It took them until May, June, even into July to get policy to where it was something neutral and then above neutral by getting the Fed funds rate above inflation. And a lot of that move came because inflation came down, which we thought it would because of the base effect on energy. It worked perfectly. So the Fed has only really been restrictive, which is what they wanted to be, for about five months. It takes longer for that. When you talk about a lag, and the Fed has talked about a lag, the, really the, 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 the depths of the recession, the acceleration to the downside economy, doesn't really project to start until the first quarter of next year. So to think that the stock market is safe uh, is is kind of, I think, short-sighted. And then let me throw another one at you real quick, too. Uh, what if, on the base effect, and certainly what's going on in the Middle East could drive oil prices higher, which I think it will. All right, I'm very bullish on oil, though near terms a little sketchy. Uh, and you get a base effect which going the other way. Last year at this time, oil prices were virtually crashing, if you remember. So the base effect is now a positive on inflation. What if inflation goes back to five or five and a half? Well, then that is completely wiped out the restrictive policy of the Fed. So this is where thoughts of 7% Fed funds kind of started to emanate for me. And then Jamie Dimon started talking about it. But that's why it's a mathematical equation. And then the question becomes, if you get there 
and the stock market's kind of cracked and inflation's starting to rise, will the Fed acquiesce to higher inflation? Well, that's the big question for me going down the road. You know, uh, we talked earlier with Kevin Muir, and he was on that panel at the end of the World Outlook Conference last year that you talk about. And one of the things that Kevin and I were kicking around was that the sharp increase in the bond yields in the United States have, in a way, done some of the job for the Fed. Like, what has happened with bond yields going up has been about the same effect, some people say, as about a three-quarter point rise from the Fed. So this this this, uh, call it lagged effect of rising interest rates hitting the economy is what you're talking about. And it's not just what we've seen from the Fed, but also from the bond market. Yeah, which is exactly why the yield curve is uninverted and now is going to start to steepen. And we talked about that as well not too long ago, how when you get to this point where the Fed is kind of on pause and inflation is at least, you know, somnambulant for right now, I think it will reaccelerate. But for now, for the very near term, the Fed's on pause, and you know that is uh, that's going to buoy the short end of the market, which has been hammered. What the long end now? Either you know the Fed acquiesced to higher inflation, or we could talk all day long about the debt and deficit. It's out of control. It's insane. I've said this a few times recently. You know, Albert Einstein defined insanity as doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. We define insanity in this country when it comes to the budget and, and, and debt by doing the same thing over and over and praying for the same result. We continue to float this bubble. What if that doesn't happen next time? What if the numbers are too high? There's so many kind of landmines here around what's happened. And you talk about the rise in bond yields. You know, I would say the same thing in terms of Fed funds, you know, with the yield being the yield curve having been inverted. I mean, bond yields have been relatively low compared to the rest of the curve, compared to where inflation is and compared to what the debt has done. So. This is why I think the curve continues to steepen, because what if the Fed kind of ends their hawkish talk or maybe even shifts dovishly if, say, the S&P falls to 3,600 or something? Well, then I don't know that the bond yields would like that. And uh, maybe they can't arrest a rise in bond yields like, uh, you know, Japan did so successfully for so long. Let's go to the stock market. I mean, we talked about this a bit off air, but um, clearly... There's a bifurcation in the stock market. There's some winners and there's a lot of losers. We've got the Magnificent Seven, which has sort of held the market up until this week, starting to see some weakness there. But there's this bifurcation where you've got strong stocks and weak stocks. I mean, I look at the transport index, for instance, and it's just really been coming off. Uh, Companies like Boeing, Caterpillar, uh, the, the different airlines and that sort of thing. And yet, you know, we see consumers keep spending, they say, but I, don't, I wonder if there's, again, some bifurcation in the who is the consumer. People that have uh, done well in the stock market, done well in real estate, surely they're keep continuing to spend. But when you see the strikes that are going on, yeah. the working folks out there are probably really having to count their dollars when it comes to spending. And I'm kind of with you. I think we have got a recession coming not too far away. And so far, the market seems to have dismissed that that's going to happen. But anyway, let's give me your thoughts on this bifurcation in the stock market. Well, we've been saying, too, and I think the last time we talked, we talked about this specific thing, that the breadth during this rally has been as narrow as anything I've ever seen for a rally that's challenging new all-time highs, number one. Uh, number two, we also talked about the dynamic of you get this inflation to come down off the base effect that people will think that the Fed's going to claim victory over inflation. You have a summer rally, and that is kind of your last gasp into this, you know, the dynamic around the consumer, too, who has depleted their savings. Real wages are still, you know, negative. You, your check buys you less the second you cash it. And to the degree to which, you know, if you don't have wealth inflation in stocks, there's very few people that are benefiting from the one place where you have some wealth reflation, which is in home equity and home equity loans. It's the only source of credit that's actually got hot, but that's for the top 10% of the, of the economy. So when it comes to the stock market, I think something happened that was significant in June because it was running on thin air anyway. When it was rallying into July, right, late July, it was really, you know, doing, looked really good. It looked like it was going to go to new highs. The breadth was so narrow. We do a quantitative studies as part of our portfolio playbook, one of the uh, things that we uh, you know, offer to investors. And we had at that point 30% of the S&P 500. We do the sectors, and then we break it down by every stock, and we rank them all. 
And in terms of the top performing bullish trends and the top performing bearish trends, not performance, but the strength of the trend, only 30% of the S&P 500 were trending bullishly, 20% were trending bearishly. That's a net 10%. That's horrible to think a new bull market's coming. And all of a sudden, this summer, people were talking about a new bull market. We said, you're going to have an economic reality check. And it came this past two weeks. Like you said, all right, it's been very narrow. It's been tech. It's been semiconductors. It's been AI. What happened in the past six days is that the semiconductor index broke down. It violated trend lines. It moved below the two-year exponential moving average. It made a new medium-term low. But not only did it break down, it it broke down against the S&P 500, and it broke down against the XLK technology, info technology sector ETF. So when the leader's breaking down against the other second leaders and against the whole market, that's a telltale sign. And what happened was energy creeped into the allocations at the end of July. Uh, the end of July, July 21st, we turned bullish on energy. 74 and change it was trading in WTI. We predicted 115. I'm still holding to that. And in the case of what you've done in energy, it went from being, you know, it crept into the allocation and all of a sudden it was 20%. Right now, what we have is basically 50% energy, and the rest is allocated between the dollar ETF, short equity ETFs, uh, the gold, Bitcoin, and uh, the, the various energy commodity ETFs. You mentioned gold. Okay, I, we got we to gotta get the gold sooner or later, but, but before I forget about it, let's, let's talk gold right now. We've had a spike here of about $125, $150 from when the uh, the attacks in Israel happened. Where do we go from here? Well, what's interesting is if you look at the bigger picture, the first thing I note is getting through 2000 has proved incredibly difficult. But when you look at the charts and you look at the weekly or the monthly charts, you have these tailed downside weekly and monthly reversals from above 2000. There was selling above 2000, heavy selling. So I'm assuming that's kind of official dumb, although we know central banks have turned large buyers too. Somebody, it looks to me like somebody didn't want gold to go through 2000. It would make sense that the Fed doesn't want to be potentially turning from rate hikes when inflation is still not at their target rate and they start to talk doublishly with gold at 2000 and the stock's near new highs. The Fed said we want pain. And I think that pain includes pain in commodities and in the equity market. But gold is on its own kind of path now because the, the recent decline was a near-perfect ABC 61% retracement of the entire rally from below 1700 So the stage is set for that correction, first of all, to have cleared the decks. Look at open interest. It's like near multi-year lows. I don't think people are involved in gold. They're disappointed in gold. It really caught them off guard. And the speed with which it rallied didn't allow a lot of people to get back in. And I've been saying this all along, too. It's like this is why you want to own something that you kind of hold because the day – you know, that the dollar card is played, and that's maybe next step stuff. It's not the next step. It's the next next step. But that's the day gold's going to spike, and you're not going to have much time to get in. So we're closer to those days now. But I think that gold is on the verge of breaking out and making, a, you know, re- resuming a secular bull market, essentially. My fear is, and the risk is, that the dollar breaks out through 107.35, an emerging market currency crisis, stocks get wasted, and everything goes down, including energy for a time. That could happen. That's what happened in 2008. It could follow that playbook. But I see the correlation seem more like 1987 than anything else. And in that case, gold would spike. And I think that that's a very good chance that that's what's going to happen. Uh, to your point about people aren't in gold, I see the gold ETF reports, which I frequently put yeah. up on, uh, on my blog. Uh, people have been net sellers of gold for three years in yeah, the ETF market. The, the open interest on the COMEX gold futures is, as you say, near record lows. I've been paying attention to that. Staying with gold, I mean, two of the big factors on gold, the correlations are the U.S. dollar and interest rates, particularly real rates. We've had uh, gold, from my view, has, you know, if it's if it just stuck to the relationship with real interest rates, gold would have been a couple of hundred dollars lower than it has been. I've been thinking that the reason it hasn't, given that the consumers of the retail doesn't seem to be there, it's probably been central bank buying around the world that has helped gold stay a little higher than it would have been if it would have been just tied to, to real interest rates. 
Yeah, de-dollarization is real, and you and I have talked about that, you know, for a while, all right? You know, you could really take that conversation way, way back, but it had to happen the way it was going to happen, and this is the way it's going to happen. In that context, I would say that one of the things I look at is the is the gold-adjusted value of the dollar. Really, simply, dollar index divided by gold. It's not like rocket science. But what this does is it represents kind of the, you know, the monetary conditions, too, and what you've had is you've had, and again, like people are disappointed in gold, but let's consider gold actually held its own into one of the strongest periods of dollar strength we've seen in quite a while over the last couple of years, you know? And really gold has gone sideways for three years. You look at like some of the longer term moving hours, I mean, it's flatlined, man, until just the recent downside. Now it dipped and it comes back up, but it really has been centered around a flat line for three years since 2001. So I would say, given what the dollar's done, that's phenomenal performance frankly. And, you know, the problem with gold is that the dollar seems to want to rally. You know, emerging market currencies are weakening. The majors are weakening. The euro, sterling had some really bad data this week. In, in you know, in Asia, there's all kinds of issues economically. Indonesia this week reported they raised rates and the rupiah is getting whacked. So those are the risks for gold. But the fact that, you know, gold is kind of now almost in the in the sweet spot, which you and I know and everyone probably listening knows, is when gold is appreciating against all paper currencies. And you're very close to that. You know, you're getting up to these levels where gold's about to break out in dollars. And if that happens, you're going to be in that sweet spot. And that would reflect a lot of potential landmines that get touched off, the least of which is not the Middle East. I mean, come on. I mean, we talked about this for, for several years now, too, even starting back in 2020 at the World Outlook Conference. China, Russia, OPEC, including Saudi Arabia with Iran, you know, Sunni and Shia together, uh, you know, orchestrated by China. It's a new axis of power with manifest destiny intentions all over Europe. And I think, you know, Iran is now challenging. They're baiting the U.S. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens. It's kind of scary. But, I, you know, I think the complacency right now around this being a ceasefire and going to be diplomatically negotiated is really, really insane to think that that's the way this is going to play out, man. I don't see that at all. Uh, Greg, hey, we got two minutes. Uh, quick thought on, on the U.S. dollar versus other currencies. I mean, for instance, the Japanese yen right now is yeah. just a hair away from uh, touching new 32-year lows. It's down 50% against the U.S. dollar since 2012. Give us a quick take, your, your sort of your portfolio playbook on the right. U.S. dollar. Well, in the dollar, we're just bullish the dollar, and then we're bearish a variety of currencies, all right, mostly emerging market currencies like the Indonesian rupiah and uh, Malaysian ringgit, particularly in Asia, but also some of the South American currencies as well, too, and even the degree to which some of the commodity currencies have not performed well. When you talk about Japan, really interesting, because they just posted yesterday, or maybe it was even this morning, you know, it turns out when you're working 20 hours a day, a week is a one day. So it's one long day a week these days. So I think it was yesterday. It could have been this morning. Japan posted Tokyo CPI, and it rose. And food inflation is above 9%. More than half of the 92 components of Japanese CPI are double digits. 25% of them are running above 20% year over year. All right? And what's the central bank doing? Nothing. Nothing at all. They're allowing the bond yield to go to 1%. Now, frankly, I'm shocked that they can get away with this yield curve control and this bond market limitations, and I don't know how much longer they get away with it. But what happens in Japan is kind of a prelude of what might happen in the U.S. eventually. So you have to pay attention. Uh, I would note that the the yen has made lows against the Chinese renminbi, the euro, uh, even sterling, which right now is a real dog all of a sudden because they have issues now. Their, their budget deficit's a mess, too. Um, so, again, when you talk about all these countries right now, the dollar is the last worst option. And that's why gold and Bitcoin right now are better options. The, the cleanest, dirty shirt in the laundry basket, as we used to say about the dollar. Hey, sometimes Greg, you, and sometimes a, you got to wear it. <laughs> it's so much fun to talk with you. I am looking forward to seeing you at the World Outlook Conference, uh, the Western Bayshore in Vancouver. It's going to be February the 2nd and the 3rd. Uh, and I know you and I are going to have a glass of wine at the speaker's dinner and really get down and dirty. Uh, Greg, be, folks, you can find Greg at WeldonOnline.com. And also, make a point, come to the World Outlook Conference and see him in person. Thanks, buddy. All right, my pleasure. You guys do a great job. I'm happy, I'm happy to contribute anytime. 
Well, folks, that's a wrap. I mean, I just really uh, enjoyed the show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. So great to talk with Kevin Muir, uh, Drew Zimmerman, and, of course, uh, my longtime friend, Greg Weldon. Um, looking forward to seeing Drew and and Greg at the World Outlook Conference again this year. Uh, and by the way, there was just so much information came at you on the, the today's show that we will post on mikesmoneytalks.ca ways that you can get in touch with Kevin and Drew and and Greg. See some of the the things that they have available. For instance, I mentioned uh, Kevin Muir's his last uh, letter was called uh, "When the Math Changes." Well, you can get a free copy of that by sending him an email. So. Go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and you'll get that information, how to contact them. Uh, also, uh, on mikesmoneytalks.ca, we'll have the uh, the preliminary information here on the tickets for the World Outlook Conference coming up on the 2nd and 3rd of February next year at the Western Bayshore in Vancouver. Those tickets are going to go on sale on the 4th of November. Inside Ed subscribers get to, to a 24-hour advance purchase on on those tickets. Um, what else would we say? Oh yeah. We make sure, you know, follow us on Facebook, on Twitter and uh, on, when you're on Mike's money you can sign up for a, a free five minute with Mike email that'll get sent out to you once or twice a week. Uh, so anyway, that's kind of a wrap. It's been fun having the show today. Mike Campbell will be back next week. Uh, he'll be back as your host in the meantime. Uh, it's been nice talking to you.